Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Two, Street Candles. Today's installment, Chapter 15. After a few minutes, we flew over an area that was quiet and dark. It didn't look different from much else in the city. Maybe it was a nicer part of town or a hipper one, but I couldn't tell. We settled down in the drop zone of a parking lot between some low buildings and latticework towers. We were somewhere near the desired club, which the kids had vaguely waved towards as we circled. Their forced detachment, which had the earmarks of masked worry, hadn't dissipated as we retreated from the riot. They muttered among themselves as G drove the car from the landing pad over to an empty parking spot along one wall of a storage facility. The lot was nearly empty, but the few cars there all seemed expensive. In English, Sindra murmured, Quiet here tonight. When is your father supposed to call back? I asked Maylie, but she just shook her head. We made our way through the lot, then down a side alley and across a shipping area behind one of the warehouses. A hulking load bot sat there with a few tiny power lights blinking in blues and ambers to indicate it was functional. It was otherwise covered in frost and imbued with the same silence of the wider neighborhood. We walked down an even smaller alleyway beyond here, towards a door with shifting light patterns playing along its surface. A holographic logo spun silently in place overhead, proclaiming the joint as The Basement in stylized English. Heavy eaves draped the entire alley in darkness, so there was no way I'd have seen this door from the air. I hated cool clubs on principle alone, but being inside anywhere, if even for just a little while, seemed like a wonderful idea about then. It was a dark place with a tacky simulation of low fog piped out of unseen jets for the sake of ambiance and an angsty synth-string tune playing softly in the background. The bar was long and made of some sort of foamed laminate. A non-humanoid bot was built into a track that ran behind. It had a hollow display floating above, scrolling through flashy video montages of the cocktails and bar food available. When we came in, the display changed to the image of a perfectly androgynous young man or woman's head with a mournful, tattooed face and spiked black hair. Its eyes seemed to follow us, but it said nothing. After a time, when we didn't interact with it, the cocktail hollows returned. There was a small platform to one end of the place for live performers, but there was no one playing tonight. Glancing around, I noted there were two other groups in here with us, all young and all wearing really expensive-looking clothes and gadgets. An automated food dispenser was built into one end of the bar, which was a common sight in such places, being an inexpensive and largely foolproof replacement for an actual kitchen or grill. 
There was a graphical menu on the front of it showing a small range of bar food. Edamame, sweet pickled meats and veggies, nuts, and some odd fried noodles that I settled on at last. I punched in three orders of the stuff at first because I didn't think it could be very filling. My breath caught, though, when I saw the price and changed the number back to one. I had enough credit to cover three, but seriously, they were asking maybe 4,000% more for this kind of crap than I'd ever seen anywhere else, up to and including the a la carte menu of one of the fanciest cruise liners in all of Ainspace. I stood in front of the machine, waiting for it to form and cook my noodles, and G came up and casually ordered a bunch of things for himself and his friends. He didn't even look at the cost. He just okayed the transaction and went back to the others after it confirmed the queue. After a minute or so, I took my hot, crispy noodles and freshly made dipping sauce and joined the kids. They were sitting off in a corner with the kind of relaxed comfort that implied it was their regular table. The function of the barbot was mostly ornamental, it seemed because each table had a cocktail dispenser of its own, and the others ordered pretty, elegant-looking drinks in tall-stemmed glasses. I just went with water. Maley picked up this tab and, like G, didn't bother with the price. It didn't seem to even occur to her. I attacked my crispy noodles and was literally finished with them in less than a minute. The kids watched me with frowns and or puzzled smiles, but they said nothing. My instinct then was to ask why we were here, but for once, I went with a less brash approach. Seems like a nice place. Sindra shrugged and took a sip of her tall, umbrella drink, whatever it was. My aunt owns it. We sat in near silence for a while, the kids chatting in fits and starts, in both low-speak and English, often interspersing the two in the same sentence. Sometimes they called friends on their comms. I tried to relax, feeling hot and stupid in my appropriated cold gear, nursing the water, and wondering what to do next. It was nice to sit quietly, but I still had an awful lot of nighttime to get through, with no place to spend it and no idea what course to pursue when the sun did finally come up. I killed time on my wrist comp, trying to connect to Griselda again, but had no luck this time. The radio net seemed jammed up or DOS'd or something because all responses were glacial. The few public news boards I could access were jumping with updates about the riot we'd escaped. It was still ongoing, apparently, and spreading, while there were several reports of real combat in the streets somewhere, between rebels and the actual Barlow military. One of these boards went dead before my eyes, when the amateur journalist covering the action got himself caught in a crossfire. The Loyalists were supposedly massing now in a particular neighborhood in town, maybe to gather strength for a final sweeping action of some kind. They didn't seem to have the personnel anymore for a lockdown of the city. The contrast with this quiet, moderately urbane cocktail lounge was striking, like a silent heart attack or a sandcastle before an oncoming tide. The clock was ticking for this bar, for these kids. And for me. Look, guys, I want to thank you for the ride here and the company. I'm not sure what I have to do or where I have to go, but I can't just wait. I have people to find. Patro called back, Maley protested. He says so. I know, but I need to find a place to stay, maybe for a few days, and I can't do that sitting here. 
I don't have a WorldNet account, so I can't call you, but if you hear anything about my crew, you can call me. Automatically, they checked their gadgets as I sent out a localized blanket shot of my contact info. Each one of them did the same in return. Syndra gave me another scowl as she saved the information to a gold filigreed ring. You will be sleeping on a vent tonight, Spacer. You are impatient and you will freeze to a pole. Well, I'm open to ideas. I'm very grateful for everything you guys have done, but I need sleep and some food. I mean, real food that doesn't cost a month's pay. G wasn't following the conversation, and Maley translated for him. He responded almost immediately, in a positive tone, looking at me and making languid, wavy motions with his hands. The others asked him a few things, and he pointed off in a certain direction that just looked like the fresher, but likely meant someplace out in the city. He say he no place, Maley told me. Groich with empty rooms, not too far. Really? Wow, and... It's okay? I can stay there for a few days? Ja, okay, G said with a dismissive shrug, looking pleased with himself. He dug into a jacket pocket and took out a metal ring with a bunch of key sticks hanging off. He made a slow show of going through them all, providing a small narrative for each that prized chuckles from the others, and once prompted Maley to smack him lightly on the arm in embarrassment. Finally, he came to a small gray one, which he twisted off and handed over without ceremony. He did have a story for it, though, one that both girls found disgusting, but which caused both he and the other boy to break into long, eye-tearing guffaws. He even bent over like a young man in pain, but Maley pushed him away, irritated. To my questioning look, Syndra merely offered, You do not want to know. That would have been a great time to take off but the others said they were waiting for some friends to show up whom they'd missed at the demonstration. With a free place to stay, the location of which I only knew to be somewhere beyond the toilets, it seemed a difficult point to press. I was working on their schedule now, which meant being a hanger-on. Every moment wasted was a moment closer to Griselda's dust-off, and the inaction was excruciating. We must have been sitting there a full hour before the consensus was finally reached that these mysterious friends were not coming. That made the group nervous. Their meetup had been a confirmed thing and the other kids were reliable. They talked about it in worried tones and multiple languages. Finally, and I don't know when it happened exactly, we found ourselves alone in the place. The other club hoppers had drifted off as we'd been sitting there chattering away. I don't like this, I announced at last. We need to go. I motioned to the empty bar, and they seemed to get the hint. This elite, this place sucks, Syndra muttered as we got up. For a sucky place, it had some fine soundproofing, because not one of us heard the fighting outside until we opened the door. It was coming from the street adjacent to the alley and past the loading dock. There were gunshots and shouting and the sound of large, heavy vehicles. Sliding into view above the eave, directly over the alley, was one of those big, expensive air cars that had been parked in the lot where G had set down. It passed out of sight in a moment, followed by a streak of light and a smoky whoosh. A crunching thump came to us from somewhere up and over the building, and then the doorframe shook violently as the car crashed down on the roof several stories above. The lights inside the bar flickered and went out. 
I glanced back inside only to see the bartender, doubtlessly under backup power, and now, with its humanoid head, looking around for the customer that had rapped on the bar for its attention. I was last in line, so it might have seemed heroic to a hypothetical outside viewer that I pushed the kids to move, to run down the alley, away from the combat. But really, I was just trying to get by them so I could escape myself. No bravery, no chivalry, just a sudden, heated instinct to live. Nonetheless, my urgent shoves seemed to be mass-interpreted as a signal to flee, which they obeyed. We turned away from the violence, running without thought. The alley went for about 50 meters to a service lane for, what else, a towering factory. People were out there, running by, screaming. Where'd they all come from? As we approached the alley's end, a figure in uniform dashed by. Just a glimpse, really. It seemed to be in the act of throwing something, and then it was gone. Immediately, there was a ringing bang off to the other side. Benley was in the lead, and he darted out without so much as a look in any direction, and the others followed. That was all philosophy was worth now. When I cleared the alleyway, I looked to where the grenade had gone off. There was a broken skim there, lying on its side, a broken rider next to it doing the same. Approaching were men and women with weapons, real military rifles, and gray uniforms. They all sported blue armbands and saw us darting past the wreck of the skim. They were shouting and aiming and then firing wildly, bullets pinging off conduits and girders, off the pavement and the building. I must have stopped without thinking, just watching this happen. The kids kept running and ducking and screaming. I didn't even realize I'd been holding my flight bag in the required fashion until the panther inside went off. An ape round fired straight through the fabric, hitting the road squarely in the midst of the approaching revolutionary soldiers. There was a bang, flash, smoke event that made me stumble back, and I tripped onto my butt. All shooting ceased, and I heard one of the rebels begin a gurgling cry. The smoke was mostly steam, as it turned out, because I'd ruptured an underground pipe, and it blasted hot, white, acrid chemicals under pressure, stinging my eyes and nose almost immediately. Soldierly voices, further back, called to each other, and I thought I saw something moving in the mist. One moment I was sitting quietly in a trendy bar with trendy young people, the next I was here, sitting in a freezing puddle, death, caustic steam and screaming all around. I might have just stayed there if I hadn't felt someone shake my shoulder roughly, bringing me out of the shock. Spacer, Syndra cried, and I looked up, blinking at her. We must go! She pulled on my arm, and I got to my feet. The girl then dashed off after her friends. My hesitation was gone, broken by her terror-stricken face. I ran to keep up, the panther now out, feeling alive and ready in my hands. This road ran straight for another hundred meters, but no one was trailing us or shooting. Maybe the rebels had no immediate backup, or maybe they wouldn't pursue without air or armor support. Or maybe I have no idea why we got away. I only know I moved, following children, running like one. There was another alley further up, and Benlay went down there, which meant we all did. 
An indolent lifestyle will always win out over adrenaline, and I had to drop back to a gasping trot, and then a walk, and finally a heaving, bent-over stop. Space air, Syndra called again, having noticed at some point that I wasn't keeping up. Then she was once again at my side, grabbing me, yanking my arm, urging me to keep moving. I couldn't talk. I was almost throwing up. I waved at her, at them all, to go on without me, because I was gasping and really didn't want anyone pulling at me just then. But the girl's insistence had an effect, and I finally shuffled on. The alley had branch-offs, dimly lighted by periodic overhead lamps, but I couldn't watch where we went or note any landmarks. I just stumbled forward, the girl dragging me by the sleeve and then running ahead to the others, calling, ordering them to wait. At one such intersection, we stopped at last, the others as grateful to catch their breaths as I was. I sank to my knees and gulped the cold air. They gabbled in low speak, looking terrified, frazzled, confused. They talked to each other and to people on their comms. Maylee called for quiet then and announced something she'd just learned from her expensive ring. The others reacted like it was a good thing, and she looked at me with a start, remembering that I didn't speak the lingo. Patro say east end of town free of fighting. We must to keep going that way to get out. How does he know? I asked, panting hard. He is a general in the army, Sindra supplied, as if I was an idiot for having to ask. Nonetheless, she helped me gently to my feet. I stuffed the panther back in the bag and cinched it up to my shoulder. I, I did not know you had that, Benlay commented, wide-eyed. It is a very good thing that he did, Sindra said simply, curtly, then waved us all to follow her. Air cars bearing box stars on their bellies passed just overhead as we set off, but they seemed to be going somewhere specific rather than looking for people skulking through a close alleyway. The revolution held the sky. I brooded on that for a few minutes as we ducked and turned, the kids following maps of their own. G had one glowing from the palm of his left hand, a subdermal display showing us all the way to go. He was too young to have one of those installed, I thought, but I wasn't complaining. When we came upon a staging area for large shipping containers, I called for a stop. We need a vehicle, I said as they gathered round. G's air car was back there, Sindra challenged with a jerk of her thumb, eyes showing irritation. We must walk. We'll get flanked if we walk, I replied, matching her testiness, or overtaken. They're making a big move tonight. The riot must have been a cover to allow troop movements in the city. And flying is a bad idea now, too. We need a ground vehicle. Look for something around here. A big car or truck. And what, we will steal it? The girl pressed. We are not thieves, Spacer. No, I replied, because I was frightened and exhausted and painful all over. You're a bunch of rich kids playing proletariat heroes. Do you think those blues back there would see any of you as anything other than elitists? Wake up! Her face immediately went from clouded to stormy. What do you mean by that, Spacer? You think because my family has a little money I cannot feel the pain of this place? You think none of us can? I spent all my last break from school on a factory farm running a chafing machine. 
all day. I did it because I wanted to know what these poor people are suffering through. Well, good for you, I replied, because I had a stitch in my side and her snotty attitude was grating. You worked on a farm because you wanted to. Then you went back home to your nice house, and after that to your nice off-world school. You're lucky you didn't have your throat cut, Syndra. I pointed at the rising smoke above the rooftops. Those people hate you. When they're done pulling down the government and the management of the factories, who do you think they'll come for next? That is garbage, she spat back. You are garbage, Spacer. You don't even care about us. Considering that I'm down here with you and all the fighting and burning, I very much do. But don't confuse the fact that I have work to do with a crying need to see justice done for your planet. My only goal is to get out of here with my people, and I'm telling you, I am telling you, you should be feeling the same way right now. Meili looked scared then and stated, Patro say we leave if things get bad. Go back to Sparze system in Empire, back home. How does he plan to do that? My ship is the only one in system, and it may not even wait for me. We, we take next ship then. With this kind of trouble on planet, you'll have a long wait. You said no one outside of Charles' system knows about our troubles, Syndra accused. No, they didn't, I responded. But a big tanker jumped out of here just a few hours before we came in. What kind of news do you think they'll be spreading to the Root Management Authority? Any scheduled star jumps to Barlow would have gotten canceled the moment that tanker did a data dump on its next arrival. All outgoing ships in that system, whichever it was, would have transmitted the news upon arrival at their next port to call. That's how it works. Jumping might take days or weeks for people aboard, subjectively, but it takes exactly no time in real space. How far do you think the bad news has traveled by now? The only ships we might see arrive will belong to Ain Fleet. Cavalier Mortoja would send help from his holdings, Benlay pronounced as if it was already a fact. Or even Parondescu would come himself. I wouldn't count on it. That would be a violation of the Terran Pact, which could be construed as an act of war. It's why I think Ain will move in, to expressly keep that from happening. But there are thousands, millions of Imperial citizens here he protested. And the here is Ain territory. These citizens, you citizens, are immigrants. You're over the border, kids. A border fully agreed upon by all governments concerned. Your dukes and counts and kings and crap are not coming to save you. Alliance military might. Then again, it might just sit up there and watch you burn your planet and rape your bosses. Because the only thing Fleet really cares about is keeping your empire in your empire. That shut them up. Syndra was angrier than ever, but she wasn't looking at me. The others, even cool, collected G, had the rim of real fear in their eyes. Maley, I injected then. Your father, the general, did he say he would have any of his soldiers meet us? No, but Colva's broken, cannot get through now. My ring maybe is dead. Automatically, the others tried theirs, and their puzzled frowns told me all I needed to know. The rebels must be jamming the local comm grid. They are taking the city tonight. Maybe the whole planet. They looked at me as if I was relating a story in particularly bad taste. Through knitted brows of irritation, even Sindra seemed to drift. 
I probably had the same appearance, but considering the kind of day I'd already had, it was hardly a surprise. Look, if we don't get out of town tonight, we might not get out at all. Do you guys get that? Either side is ready to shoot anything that moves, and the Blues especially won't care about killing well-dressed teenagers in the streets. I am 20, Benlay put in, obtusely. There will be too many for them to do that, Sindra argued. People trying to leave, refugees. Not if this is over quickly, I replied. If the fighting is done by morning, the revolution could be at an end, but we could also be dead by then. They eyed each other, as if testing to see that they all agreed with this oddball stranger. As usual, it was Sindra who made up their minds for them. So, we will look for a car, and we will go to my home. It is outside of town. We will be safe there. Will that satisfy you, Spacer? She poured all the injustices heaped upon a little rich girl into a single pissed-off glance at me. I just smiled tightly in return. It definitely sounds like a plan. You have been listening to Street Candles, written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com or drop me an email at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called Icor by Trunks, and can be found on soundcloud.com. The Street Candles theme is called Undercover by Karsten Holy Moly and can be found on dig.ccmixter.org. This production is otherwise copyright 2013 by David Collins Rivera and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. Street Candles is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person living or dead or any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.